This episode was a truly unique opportunity that I was blessed to have come across during my podcasting journey. Uh, With that said, instead of my normal spiel of explaining to you what my show is about, let me actually begin by saying thank you. Back in October 2018, I reached out through social media and asked for followers and listeners to help me connect with other people who fit the criteria of a setting stages guest. I ran out of guests for the year. I had worked a lot of time and trying to get people to get on the show. Unfortunately, with scheduling conflicts and the holidays approaching, it just became more and more challenging to find people who were willing to commit. And so I reached out almost in desperation through social media to get people to connect with me. Now, I was lucky enough to have some responses, and in one of those responses in the days that followed came from my friend Pete Ridge. Pete's DM read to me, Spoke to my pops about your podcast. He's happy to connect with you and spend some time with you, if you're interested. I was jumping out of my freaking skin. I told him I was humbled and downright honored to have the opportunity to talk to his dad. His response? I'm all about seeing good people doing good things, and any place that I can help, if it works, I'm all for it. What's your email address? For those of you listening, if through this show I've sparked any light of inspiration in you, if I've reminded you of your worth and your ability to design a life that you've dreamed, or otherwise provided you with some kind of value through my work on setting stages, I just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity to share a morning walk with you, to keep you company on your commute to work, and for simply sharing your time with me in a project that I've been so passionate about over the course of the last one and a half years. Thank you so much. And Pete, cheers. Thanks for believing in my work. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Setting Stages with Eddie Mack. I'm your host, Eddie Macaranis, and I'm a former dancer with a passion for helping people through words and stories. In my show, I talk to guests who have followed some unconventional path, either through business, entrepreneurship, creativity, health, and lifestyle, among other pursuits. They'll share with you their experiences, their failures, their wins, and explain just how they set the stage for their path in life. I gave a little bit of an introduction to my next guest at the start of my interview, but I will leave you with this before we begin. He is a walking encyclopedia of inspirational quotes on life and leadership, but beyond his ability to quote cool words, he actually lives through them and is a practitioner of these philosophies while he refines his own. If you're part of a team or organization, and especially if you are called upon as a leader in any group setting, this is the episode for you. Please welcome the CEO of WD40 Company, Gary Ridge. Let's go. Today's guest is a man who puts leadership at the top of his list of values in the workplace and in life. He believes that our job as leaders is to never stop developing ourselves because doing so benefits everyone we encounter and influence. And that's why he's the ideal guest for setting stages with Eddie Mack. Here on today's episode, I'm seated with the president and CEO of WD40 Company, 
Gary Ridge. Welcome to the show, Gary. G'day, Eddie. You're being very generous with your introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've heard a multitude of accolades through the, those introductions throughout your career, I can imagine. But I appreciate you t- giving me the time today. It's awesome to have you here. Uh, I'm looking forward to what you have to share. Um, I do want, actually, our audience to understand you a little bit more as a person. If you can just give us a glimpse of your childhood, your parents, maybe siblings, and life in Australia, in fact. Well, life in Australia, yeah, I was born in Australia, grew up in a middle-class suburb called Five Dock, went to Dremoyne Boys High School. I'm the youngest of four. There's 12 years difference between me and my next brother. So I kind of grew up in an adult family, Um, worked a lot in my early years. Uh, I worked on a milk truck, I was a paper boy, worked in a hardware store, a sporting goods store, and a dry cleaning store. Um, So, you know, understanding people and business was always important. My dad worked for the same company for 50 years, from when he was 15 to 65, had a wonderful work ethic. I think I I learned a lot from him. He used to say, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, and I think that was true. My mum was kind of an adventurer, um, always the one that uh, would tell you that there's nothing you can't do. Um, and uh, she actually lived till she was 99 years and nine months old, three months away from being 100. She passed away about five years ago, So, um, and she was uh, pretty sharp till the end. So the genes are good, I hope. Yeah, absolutely, nearly a century on, yeah. this, on this planet. And it sounds like you were surrounded by a very strong work ethic with your father being the way that he was in regards to earning your, your worth. And it also sounds like your mother was the dreamer, the one that looked beyond what limits might be given to you, and I think that's a great, solid foundation, and perhaps maybe even influence your uh, your pursuit in leadership now. Definitely. Absolutely. What was your first job again? You said that you worked at a hardware store, there were several different well, things. Well, my first real job sure. when I left school, I, I was going to be a retailer, I was going to be a, I joined a company in Australia called Walton's, I, um, I was in their management trainee program, um, and I completed that, um, but you know, I, as, a, as a kid at school, you know, I, as I said, I worked on milk trucks and sold newspapers and had a little car wash business with a friend. We, we used to wash cars oh, at the, wow. in a local parking lot. So, you know, there was always some interaction, but my first real job was uh, in retailing. Got it. And in, in that retail job, what position did you hold entering that position? I was a management trainee. Okay. So I started um, schlepping lounge suites and furniture up yeah. two or three flights of stairs. Oh my gosh! Yeah, um, you know, I, I even went to a um, a package parcel wrapping course. So I I did have a certificate in parcel wrapping. Although if you saw me wrapping Christmas presents, you wouldn't know that. Right? <laughs> Don't ask me to. But wrap. the management trainee program was good. You learned all the aspects of what they called modern retailing in those days. I see. That was back in the seventies. Probably not so modern anymore. But cool. I think one of the things you do learn about that in, in something like that, it's very customer focused, very customer. Sure. So you learn that you know the customer is the important one. Um, and you're there to serve the customer, and uh, the, the, the happier or more delighted your customer is, the more chance there is they're going to come back and be a patron of your store and, and help you, you know, do what you need to do. It's great for you to have seen that firsthand at such a young, young age, too. Um, considering what it is that you do now, you lead people to understand that philosophy as well, which I think is wonderful. Um, you know, so is, let me backtrack a little bit around your transitions, though, throughout life. Having lived in Australia, perhaps working in that retail job and such, describe your transition from living in Australia and now residing in the United States. 
I only ever applied for one job in my life. That was my first job okay. at Walton's. And from then on, I, I was asked to uh, join another company, um, a company that was actually a supplier to that retail store. Um, and I had to make a choice in my life. Was, was I to continue my retailing career? I was about to move into to buying, the buying office. Or do I go on this other track? And the other track was more in the wholesaling um, sales area. And uh, I was a young guy, and honestly, they offered a company car. I thought that's pretty cool. And Why not? nothing like being, you know, <laughs> 20 years of age in a company car. Yeah, that's not a bad so deal. So I went to work for them, and, um, and from that, I got to know some folks that were in another organization, coincidentally, who were the um, distributors of WD-40 in Australia. And they asked me to join them as their sales manager, so I joined them as the sales manager. And that's how I got to know the folks here at WD-40. And in 1987, the licensing arrangement with that company was coming to an end. And WD, I got a phone call one day, and it kind of went like this. Hi, Gary, this is Jerry. Jerry was the the senior guy here at WD-40. This is a confidential conversation. You know that we're going to um, end our licensing agreement because we want to start a subsidiary in Australia, really to understand more about international business. At that time, this company was a fifth of the size that it is now, and most of its business was here in the United States. Okay. So they were just starting to get interested in how do we take the blue and yellow can with a little red top to the world. And he said, would you like to join us and open our Australian subsidiary? And I went, wow. Well, going back to my dad, he was an engineer, and, and I mentioned to him, I said, Dad, you know, WD-40 want me to go work for them, and he said, you can't go wrong with that stuff, son. And I guess he was right. Wow. So I joined them in 1987, started with a fax machine under my bed. That's how we started the company. Six months later, we had our office, we'd employed people. And on January 1, 1988, we opened the Australian subsidiary and we started the development of the Australian market at a higher level and more importantly, the Asian market. I spent a lot of time in Asia. And then in 1994, I was having a conversation with the same guy who was the head guy here and he and I um, shared with him I, I, Jerry is there more you would like me to do I, I, I think I can give you more he said well funny you should ask would you like to move to the United States and I said really what for oh, wow. and he said um, to um, head up our global expansion you've done some stuff in Asia that we like we like a couple of the business models you put together we don't have anybody who has a passion to take the can to the world like you do why don't you come over here and help us do that? And I said, okay. So we packed up our toys. My son was 12, I think. My daughter was 10. And um, my then wife uh, was very supportive. And we, we <laughs> moved to San Diego. No so kidding. load up the ca container. And a bit like the Beverly Hillbillies, oh, right? Gosh. Here we come. So. Yeah. Well, I, can, I can't imagine, too, uh, you know, just uprooting your family from something that you, you're so familiar with. But the success that you gained in, at work and in the workplace obviously brought you this opportunity. What was that transition like for your family uh, coming to the United States? They were young, it sounds like, so perhaps it was easier. But you tell me. Well, I think initially it went from excitement. You okay. know, um, Pete, my son, was excited to come over to the home of baseball. And, oh, okay. Um, you know, my daughter loved dance, so the dance was something that she got heavily involved in. And I think it was scary. It was exciting. Um, we went through a few, you know, a few times of, of um, anxiety, but we got here. Sure. And, uh, and I'm so pleased we did because, you know, both Pete and, and, and Kate have gone on to benefit from great things here. And, uh, um, you know, I, I was certainly very lucky. And uh, I think it's, 
it's an adventure. It's it's about taking chances in life. You know, opportunities come to you, and you, you've got to decide when you're going to reach out and take that opportunity. And and it was a big opportunity. I remember my mother clearly saying to me, "You're going to do what? You know, take my grandchildren <laughs> to the United States? How long will you be going for?" And I remember saying, "Well, maybe five years, and we'll see what happens." Well, you know. What is it? Twenty something years later, we're still here. So, but it's about taking opportunities, being aware of the opportunities. You know, I often say, um, opportunities are abundant. Focus is a gift. So, focus in on the things that you believe that that you can make a difference in, and go for them as hard as you can. And I, you know, if you, if you get in the game and you play your best game every game, there's a big chance you'll stay on the A team. Look at that. That's powerful. Did you have any reservations, though, when that, po- that position presented itself to you? Of course. Sure. What were some of those fears and, and thoughts that ran through your mind prior to making? I was going to a completely new place that, you know, I, leaving Australia, I, I was fairly well established, even at a young age in the okay. business community. I, I could pick up the phone and call most people and, you know, find out what I wanted. And this was completely new, you know. Folks here drove on the other side of the road. Wow, how, how are you going to do that? <laughs> that was probably the biggest challenge. There. Yeah, well, yeah. But, you know, yes, there were a lot of, a lot of things, but I, I'm not a person that really lets that get in my way. You know, I often say, now that we've worked out all the reasons why we can't do it, can we just get on with it? And I think that's really important. I mean, I, I am sometimes criticised for being extremely optimistic, but I, I don't think it's optimism that drives me. I think it's the confidence that tomorrow can be a better day. Um, you know, life's a gift. Don't send it back, back unwrapped. And, and we, we don't, we're here for a good time, not necessarily a long time. And we have a lot of opportunities in, in, in the world today. We've got a lot to be grateful for. People often say to me, you're very busy, Gary. I say, no, I'm not busy. I'm rejoicing in an abundance of worthwhile work. That's how I look at life. Wow. And you obviously appreciate then all of the things that have presented this opportunity for you. And nonetheless, it's not considered work and being busy. You are actually giving yourself wholeheartedly into what you do, and you live through that. I believe people deserve an opportunity to do their best. And anybody who's put in a position where they can create a place where people go to work every day, they make a contribution to something bigger than themselves, they help people learn, the people are safe and go home happy. That's a very treasured gift you're given as a leader and you, you, you need to make the most of it. You know, the Dalai Lama said our purpose in life is to make people happy. If you can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And I'm ashamed of the number of leaders that are out there today whose ego eats their empathy instead of their empathy eating their ego. You know, Simon Sinek says, leadership is not about being in charge. Leadership is about taking care of the people in your charge. That's why we go to work here every day. And the things that make me the most excited, and when the 95-year-old me puts my head down on the pillar, I want to be able to say I'm proud of what the 95-year-old me was able to bring to the world. And if that's helping people step into their best version of their personal self, I will be proud. That's heavy, Gary. That's a, that's a fantastic philosophy you've got. I can't I, I have no I have no way of really expressing it any better than you, but you you put people at the forefront of your um, your priority list, which is I have to because I'm consciously incompetent. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a klutz. <laughs> 
when you you studied uh, retail and wholesale distribution at Sydney Technical College, yeah, and finished your master's at executive uh, in an executive leadership at USD. Correct. When you reflect back on your experiences, whether through adolescence or even adult young adulthood, what do you think encouraged your direction to pursue a leadership role? I didn't. Okay. I, w- I if you would have said to me in nineteen eighty. One day, you will be the CEO of a $2.5 billion U.S. corporation. I would say to you, Eddie, you're crazy. That is never going to (laughs) happen. Really? So I I never, ever had any ambition. What I had to be the, the leader of a company such as this that I am so grateful that I have the opportunity to to be. What I did say is that I'm going to do the best I can to make a difference the best way I can. And I've been somewhat okay at that. Um, And for that, I've been rewarded. So I never thought about it any other way. Wow. Uh, I think what some of the things that got me here is I'm curious. I'm very curious. I love to learn. I love creating memories. You know, I... I often say, you know, our business here, if you look at what our why is, we exist to create positive, lasting memories by solving problems in factories, homes, and workshops of the world. We solve problems and we create opportunities. And I think our, our whole mission in life is to create these positive, lasting memories. I say to the, to the family, and I, I said it to my son Pete many a time, don't give me a tie for Christmas. I'll never remember the tie. But I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember the time he and I went to see dueling pianos with Elton John and Boss Gags at the Staples Center, and I can still remember sitting there. Unreal. So it's the memories I want. Because at the end of the day, I don't care whether you've, you're a multimillionaire, I don't care where you live or what car you drive, it all goes back in the box. And the size of the box won't change too much. (laughs) Wow. So I I really appreciate what you're saying here in regards to serving others, serving others in terms of creating those memories and being curious and learning for yourself, constantly developing. And I mentioned it during your introduction here that you're an advocate for always developing. And I think that that focus in developing yourself and others to help them go home happy and creating those memories for them has really shown its opportunities in other ways. Thus, why you now lead a company such as WD-40 Company. Fantastic story. And to think that you wouldn't have thought to yourself that you would take on that role, uh, it really speaks to you and your values and how much that was more meaningful to you than it was the position. So, um, you know, what role you play was not as important as how you play it. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Um, who mentored you and, and or influenced your passion for developing people? How long have you got? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, that's great. That means that you've been surrounded by the right people. If you were to, you know, maybe well, touch on a couple a few of people. them. You know, when I was growing up in Australia, there was Warren Knox, who, who was, owned the hardware store, Jack Lamott, who owned the sporting goods store, um, John Eckley, who, who owned the, the dry cleaning store. Okay. You know, these people that I work for at a young age showed me different things and taught me different things. You know, Jack Lambert was the owner of the sporting goods store. And, and, and Jack um, used to um, string tennis rackets as part of the repair in those days. And I remember Mr. Lambert, if you could think of his, if his, if his fingers, they were calloused from pulling the, the then what they would call cat gut really tight to string a tennis racket, right? Okay. So you'd pull it hard. And, and, I, and I, 
I went out to the back of his workshop one day when I was working in the front of the store, and he's there, and he's really putting all he's got into stringing this, this tennis racket. And I remember vividly saying to him, Mr. Lambert, that's hard work. What are you, what, you know, why? He said, well, someone tomorrow is going to depend on me. And if I don't do my best to string this racket, then the person who plays with this racket has no chance of winning. He was actually stringing the racket for one of the Australian tennis champions. Oh, my God. He was kind of like the guy that packed the parachute. Wow. And a t- big lesson I got from him is, you know, you, you have to make sure that the work you do is supporting the outcome of someone else. So if he hadn't put all of that dedication into to that racket, the guy the next day may not have won the Australian Open. But no one knew Mr. Lambert. No one knew Mr. Lambert. That's respect. <laughs> what can I say? That's outstanding. That obviously has played uh, weaved its way into your philosophies too. Yeah, I mean, you're not the one on stage. You're the one in the side of the stage. It's like being a, a great coach. A great coach doesn't play on the field. A bad leader tries to pay, play on the field. You're dropping dimes like crazy. This is great. I hope they're dollars. Oh, pardon me? <laughs> I hope they're dollars. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, you know, speaking of coaches then and bad leaders, can you describe a time when you were coached in a way that discouraged your progress or productivity or effort in any way? No. Okay. If, if you were to consider those scenarios where you witness perhaps coaching that could go in a different direction, how do you address that? Um... I think that people have to have honest conversations. Um, Something that I've really adopted in the last few years is what I call the the essence of candor. And I call candor no lying, no faking, no hiding. Um, A lesson that I could have done better with learning a long time ago. But most people don't lie, but a lot of people fake and hide. And why do they fake and hide? Because they're afraid. Um, That's why we say at our company, we don't make mistakes, we have learning moments. A learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that has to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. So, you know, you can do things in this company that don't absolutely turn out exactly the way they should. However, as long as you've lived our values, and as long as you're open about the learning you've had from that, you will be a hero. So what does that create? It creates a continuous learning environment that reduces fear so people are open and willing to share what's working, what's not working. And if that's happening, the, the outcomes eventually must multiply to a positive place. Where most organisations, the fear is there so people fake and hide. So you never, you never unla- unleash the absolute power that people have because they're faking and hiding. So going back to the question is a bad coach or or someone who's giving bad advice doesn't build trust because there's fear about the consequences of that deliverable, that sharing. How do you communicate that that standard of communication in terms of coaching and, um, and the like? How does that translate to your managers and their managers below them etc firstly we don't have any managers here okay everyone's called a coach 
So, what, so already there's no you know there's no hierarchy, there's no superiors, there's no everyone. So I coach the people who are my direct reports, and I am second coach to theirs. So our whole philosophy is we're not here to mark your paper, we're here to help you get an A. So what does an A look like? I wrote a book with Ken Blanchard called Helping People Win at Work. Read it. It's all about not marking people's paper but helping them get an A. How do you do that? By embedding that philosophy in a in a consistent, ongoing, relentless way with zero tolerance around not adapting that we are here to help people get A's. So when when you consider those situations that might be challenging for those coaches, have you experienced a time that was extremely challenging for you, maybe a major setback, whether that's personally or professionally, that may have impacted your productivity in life or professionally? Sure, we all do that every day. I mean, whether it's major or minor, we all have setbacks. Sure. You know, you need to take a time to reflect and dwell on, you know, how you ended up where you ended up. Is there a learning from that? Hmm. Um, At the end of the day, though, you have to leave the baggage at the station and move on. Um, My friend Marshall Goldsmith often says, let it go. Hmm. Learn from it, let it go. You know, so many times we're carrying in our backpack of life rocks that shouldn't be there that are holding us down. And eventually we've just got to go, you know what, (sighs) let it go. Learn from it, let it go and move on. Now, if you don't let it go, it's going to weigh you down. It's like, you know, having regret or having what I would call hate for someone else. Hate is like drinking poison (coughs) and expecting the other person to die. So you can't do it. You've eventually just got to let it go. Wow. You mentioned earlier in the discussion, too, that we've spent so much time thinking about how we can't do something or how much it's not going our direction. Can we just move on and find out how to get past it? And that very much speaks to how mm-hmm. you would overcome those setbacks and challenges. Yeah, yeah you can let this stuff... Um, you know, what, what, what did I read the other day? Um, not my circus, not my monkeys. Have you heard that before? No, no, I, I, you know, you're in a situation where someone's gifting you their problem, right? Oh, gosh. Hey, not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> you know, sorry, sure. I, I can't, can't go there. Yeah, yeah. You've got your own to deal with as yeah. it is. I hear you. As a person in your position professionally, I can imagine that there's certainly some way of keeping mindful of your daily habits mm-hmm. and, uh, and activities. Describe to us what would be your morning routine. Okay. Well, um, if I'm in San Diego. Okay. So Fair. I travel about 220,000 air miles a year. Oh, geez. I uh, last year stayed in 136 hotel rooms uh, over the year, so I'm, I travel a lot. So... When I'm traveling, my routine is a little different. But when I'm home here, I usually, I'm usually up between 3.30 and 4 in the morning. Um, my, I go to the kitchen, I make myself a cup of coffee, and I go to my office upstairs, and I prepare myself for my day. Um, I usually have some dwell time of my own where I really sit quietly and think about what is really going on in my world right now. Um, what alarm bells are going off that I'm not listening to? And if you would have, and you, you shared that you read my book where I told the story about not listening to alarm bells. And the story was that 
I was actually traveling. I was in a hotel in London. I was sitting there with my flip-flops on and my shorts and my T-shirt. It was the middle of winter. I was settled in to watch some British comedy and the alarm went off in the hotel. And what did I do? Exactly what I always did. I didn't take notice of it. <laughs> and eventually, you know, there's a bang, bang, bang on the door. Get out of the hotel. So here I do. I grab my passport and my cell phone and I run down the stairs. And now I find myself in the middle of, you know, Berkeley Square in London, in the middle of winter in a pair of shorts, a flip-flops and a T-shirt. And it wasn't very comfortable. <laughs> then it started to rain. And, you know, as you know, rain affects my hair and because <laughs> I'm bald. But anyhow... The, the learning from that was what alarm bells are going off in your life that you're not listening to. And, it, and you don't have to really take notice of them, but you have to be aware of them. So I start the, my day with thinking, what alarm bells are going off in my life? Am I aware of them? Then I can make choices. I'm going to pay attention to it or not, but at least it's a choice. I catch up on what I need, need to catch up on. I go downstairs. I get ready for work. I make my wife a cup of coffee. I let Max the dog out. And, um, and then I come to the office. I'm usually at the office around you know, 6.37. And I'm, I do what I do at home because when I get to the office, I want to be here for the people. I don't want people finding me in my office with my door shut because my job is really to be with them. So then I can spend the first couple of hours of the day actually talking to my people, whether it be on conference calls in other countries around the world or just wandering around here. I send a daily message out to everybody around the world every morning. It says, for today, from. And if I'm at home, it would be for today from Poway. And it's usually an inspirational quote that goes out to everybody around the world. And then my day here is made up of a whole different array of things, whether I'm working on you know, strategy, people staff, you know, board, investors, it depends. Uh, it depends how my calendar gets filled uh, or whether I'm chatting with folks like you, Eddie. Right. Uh, so that's kind of what I do. I, I, am, I've, I'm responsible, I believe, for two main things. Number one, our people, and number two, our brand. And everything else falls away pretty quickly from that. I appreciate that you start with you understanding the alarm bells that are going off in your life at that moment. I think that acknowledging them and absorbing how to get past and beyond those problematic situations first really addresses where your mind is for the remainder of the day. And I think that sets the tone. If I'm catching your story right, it sets the tone for being prepared for those situations that aren't exactly the smoothest. Now, not all days go as planned as I can imagine, and sometimes they can quickly unravel and become frustrating. You touched a little bit on this, but what steps do you take to, uh, to tackle those unanticipated problems? Let me add something else to what you just said, too. The other side is I spend a fair bit of time in the morning understanding what I'm grateful for. Fantastic. So it's not just what, what are my alarm bells, but I, I take a moment to really think about what am I grateful for. So. Um, you know, I, I don't believe in your hair get, gets on fire. So if we've got something going on, and, you know, if you look it up on our wall here, you'll see the decision-making process. Yes. So the first thing it says, clarify the issue. Gather the facts. Refuse to be pressured into a decision. Ask what risks are involved. So, you know, I think that if any, if, if a crisis situation or something, clarify the issue. I mean, is this really an issue? 
you know, gather the facts. A lot of people really feed on fact, fiction, and opinion. And in times of crisis, there's a lot of fiction and opinion and not a lot of fact. So stop. I often say also, if you want the answer now, it's no. <laughs> because we have to take time to think it through. So come off the edge of the cliff, don't jump. The world's not particularly gonna end right now. Let's just make sure before we put all this precious energy we have into something, we know what we're putting it into. And the last one is that I has up there, which I really like, is be wary of advice from people who don't have to deal with the consequences. Hmm. Can you expand on that, please? Yeah, a lot of people will give you advice on 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 projects, situations, but they they are not going to be accountable for the outcome. So. You know, you have to be wary of advice from people who are not going to be held accountable for the outcome because then it's just cheap advice. Interesting. Do they have skin in the game? Got it. So they're not, if they're not vested emotionally in, or in some way, shape, or form in the accountability of the outcome, no thanks. Well, thank you, but, oh. <laughs> but, but I, I'm wary of that. I'm, I need to get comfortable with the advice. Fair. Uh, Let's change gears just a tad here, but what, what, what aspect about your work really excites you the most? The people. Yeah. It's all about the people. Mm-hmm. It's all about um, developing, attracting, developing, retaining, training, helping, teaching, engaging, enabling, you know, rewarding, celebrating with people. It's all about the people. I've read um, articles actually recently kind of leading up to today's discussion um, and I, uh, I was reading about you and about how perhaps there are some tribe members that will need to be directed in other ways. Perhaps maybe the, the, the work that they're doing isn't for them or perhaps they don't fit that role. How do you address and direct them to the right direction? Um, what makes them happy? You know, you, in life you, you, you deserve to be happy. So, you know, WD-40 is a great place to be, but it's not for everyone. So we need to do our best to ensure that we are creating and providing opportunities that make people happy and excite them. If not, then you need to be happy. You know, you, 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 there are other places. You don't have to be here. But our job first is to make sure we've done what we need to do. And we have shared people with competitors in the past that don't find happiness here. Well, you deserve to be happy. And it's okay. It's okay. My original question, I kind of needed to ask it differently based on the segue, was that there, there's a large sum of my audience who work in a corporate environment or work in some kind of organization where they've expressed that they don't necessarily love what they do. Albeit, they might even be good at what they do, but they're not fulfilled. Your advice to them, it sounds to me, is to find their happiness. Leave. <laughs> there it is. Why? Leave. Yeah. Go be happy. Yeah. Because back in 384 B.C., Aristotle said, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. If you're not happy, be happy. Go find something and be happy. You deserve to be happy. So find a way to be happy. We've got one chance at this this happiness thing, don't we? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, nobody's come back and told me any, anywhere else is any better, so make it work now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Again, switching gears here, you've developed a leadership program called The Learning Moment. Can you describe to us what the program's mission is? 
um, to share my learning moments over time. So when I finished my my degree in leadership at the University of San Diego, um, I, I really was convinced that creating a, a work environment where learning was the most powerful tool. You know, um, Nelson Mandela said that that education is the most powerful tool we have to change the world. And I believe that. So I wanted to create a platform where we could share and I could share the things that I've learned over time because I am not that smart. All I do is learn stuff, hmm. right? So, you know, if there's things I've learned that I could share with the world, I'd like to do that with people. So the learning moment is the website I have and I, I write blogs. I talk about books that I've um, that I think are, are add value to people's lives um, and th- through that I, I do some mentoring with mainly with um, school kids I don't know if you noticed today but through the building here there's about 60 high school students from the local high school that we've been supporting through um, a program they're doing with uh, um, what is it achievement uh, Junior Achievement? Junior Achievement. Yes, okay. And we've had classes with them down there, and today they're here, and we're doing a, a, su- a summary class. I spoke to them this morning. Nice. So, again, um, mentoring young people, sharing some of the stuff that we've learned along the way. So the learning moment really is a platform for sharing um, experiences. I talked to Sai. Sai's my videographer. Uh, for the audience members that aren't here to hear his voice, he's he's present in the room. But when we entered the building, uh, we noticed the children, uh, the high school children, walking around and, and given given a tour. And I mentioned to you before we turned the mics on hot that this place felt so welcoming. Um, I do appreciate that this program exists and that you open your doors for such a program. Sai and I acknowledge that we didn't grow up uh, educationally to have that type of exposure and I think that it's wonderful to have an individual like you with all of that you've shared even so far to have that position uh, to share your wealth your mental wealth and and educate others through that that platform I think it's very powerful it's the most fun we have that's awesome and I can tell that the students are appreciating it too just watching maybe because they the get the full lunch though, hey sure. <laughs> <laughs> can't knock a nice granola bar in there the kitchen eh? <laughs> um, when you when you put together all of what you've learned to create the learning moment, um, I want to understand a little bit more, if you can break down for us, how you organized or curate the curriculum that you teach. There's something, a step-by-step of how you th- thought of these philosophies or all of these guideposts that you learned mm-hmm. to create this. Yeah. Well, the first thing is it's about the people. So the, the, the process is do you have a people-first philosophy? which means creating a culture where people go to work every day, they make a contribution to something bigger than themselves, they learn something new, they feel safe and they go home happy. The second part of it is values. Are there a set of values that you have within the organization that create freedom? Freedom being your ability to make decisions based on a hierarchical set of values that will guide you in the direction of an outcome that we want, for whatever that may be. Then we talk about um, the two areas of business that most people focus on that they should focus on but they get out of balance their allocation of time and that's strategy and tactics hmm. most organizations talk what's your strategy what's your tactics and they forget you've got to have a people focused organization with values that really amplify the strategy and the execution and I call that area the typhoon zone because if you stay there too long Certainly, you'll get short-term good outcomes, but if you stay there too long, you'll actually destroy 
the opportunity to really have abundance because you've forgotten about how powerful the amplification of culture and values can be. And then finally, the power of the learning. Do you have an organisation that has an absolute embedded culture around learning and curiosity? So they're the things we talk about a lot of, of being the, 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 if you will, the 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 cornerstone. And then that, that platform sits on four pillars, care, candor, accountability and responsibility. I care about you. I'm going to be candid with you. No lying, no faking, no hiding. We're going to hold each other accountable. Most people let people down because they haven't confirmed what they expect from each other. Hmm. And that's accountability. Hmm. And then responsibility is the turbocharger of accountability. Because if you will if you're comfortable with being accountable and you're comfortable with having a responsible attitude, you'll turbocharge the outcome. So those are the sort of things we talk about. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And can you uh, just go ahead and drop the website for thelearningmoment.com? Yeah, www.thelearningmoment.net. Fantastic. Thanks, Gary. Um, I, as we come to the, near the end of our discussion today, I did reach out to social media to um, perhaps gain some questions. Ooh. I know it. Um, I know that I didn't necessarily send these to you in advance, but I, w- I hope that you'll have a moment to kind of reflect on these these questions. But I had one response from at Monanigans. Describe when you've seen the company at its best. What could be learned from those moments? When purpose-driven, passionate people draw. Div- uh, guided by their values, are performing at a magnificent level. So purpose-driven, passionate people guided by their values. If you have a purpose and you're passionate, you're guided by your values, you get maximum performance. Awesome. That was the one question that I had from social media. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'd like to wrap it up with really just some fun questions here. More casual Gary, if you will. All right? This is kind of a quick-fire lightning round of questions, okay? What is your favorite food? Italian. Yeah? Any specific food in Italian? Uh, well, pasta probably. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an Alfredo guy myself. Yeah. Love it. All right. Uh, favorite movie of all time? Uh, well, I have two. Please. The, and for two reasons. All right. One is Invictus, which is the story of how Nelson Mandela, through his leadership, changed South Africa. Fantastic movie. The other one is Godfather 1. Oh, right on. Uh, I'm a mobster, I, I guess, fanatic myself. Favorite movie of all time for me is Goodfellas. All right. I really like it. I actually it. watched that again the other night. Did you? I could watch it, honestly, at any I, given moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, f- aside from Australia, hmm. favorite country that you visited? Can't answer. Hard I, answer. Is, I can't answer it. There are so many. <laughs> Don't upset anybody. <laughs> there are so many. I mean, I love different things about different countries around the world. So I've, I've been asked that question so many times, and it's really hard for me to answer. Okay, fair. All right. And you've seen a lot. I mean, 220, 100, I haven't been to 220. We're in 176 oh. countries. I think at last count, I've been to 62. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, are you a football fan? Not American football. Got it. All right. Well, that ends that part of the discussion. Because <laughs> I don't know anything about MLS or soccer at all. Well, uh, rugby proper. is the game. Ah, I see. Got it. Uh, speaking of rugby, um, USD has a um, – or is it UCSD? I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend those alumni. But um, they have uh, a, an event called Scrum by the Sea. Have you ever visited or, or attended the event? No. Interesting. Yes. No. I, I believe it's UCSD that has I'll it. Have to it's, find it out. Yeah, it's their women's um, rugby. Okay. So, anyways. Uh, last thing, and this is uh, uh, kind of going back to leadership here. There is a phrase that is coined um, that I've heard at different conferences, read them in certain books, in fact, and the phrase is servant leadership. P- 
please give us Gary's definition of that? There are two words, servant and leadership. So in any circumstance, the first thing you have to do is use the word leadership. And a leader's responsibility is to ensure that they have a business model, they have the resources, they have clear goals, clear expectations. That's leadership. The second part is servant. Once the leader has that in place, if you think about a pyramid, the leader at that time is at the top. You turn the pyramid upside down, the leader goes to the bottom. Now he's the servant. His job is to be the cheerleader, the provider, and what I would call the sweeper, to sweep the issues out of the way of the people so they can achieve. So we are here to serve our people how to do what? Not to mark their paper, help, help them, them get, get an A. a. I'm with it. Gary, thank you so much for dropping the gems and dollars that you did today. <laughs> um, you're a wonderful person to have a conversation with. Uh, I would encourage others to look more into your work. I think that your philosophies really speak volumes to me. Uh, I'm in a leadership position at my day job. Uh, I definitely have appreciated uh, helping people when at work. You and Ken did a phenomenal job with that. Uh, and I, I do take the Karen candor with me. It's something that I'm constantly learning. I feel that the, the candor, the part where we have to be candid, is really challenging uh, for me personally. However, as I remind myself through your book, it does help me kind of redefine those moments where I allow someone to learn. And I think that you have really made that difference in my leadership philosophies too. And last word. Please. Leadership is a balance between being tough-minded and tender-hearted, and the genius is in the end. I love it. I think we got to end it right there. Thank you. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it very much. Welcome. First time I've done that. Bam. What an episode. And I'm so glad that you guys got to listen to Gary Ridge himself share his philosophies and share his wisdom with you all. Hope you were able to take something away from that. In fact, I would really love your feedback on this episode. This one really meant a lot to me because of the huge opportunity that I was given to sit with someone of his stature and really be able to dig deep and share his words and really his insight about leadership and how you can apply that hopefully in your line of work or your organization. Hit me up at underscore Eddie Mac on Instagram. Please send me a DM and also take a screenshot of this episode if you listened to it. Share it on your stories. Tag me at underscore Eddie Mac and I'll be sure to share that on my story to give you some love and show some appreciation for your time. Thank you guys so much for listening to yet another episode of Setting Stages with Eddie Mac. If you take any value from this episode or any episode of the show, Hit me up on a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to your podcast. It would really help the show gain some relevance and gain some momentum to hopefully share some great insight for others that haven't yet heard of the show. Thank you again so much for your time. I hope to catch you on the next one. But in the meantime, live a passionate and purposeful life. Have an awesome day. Let's go.